Uh, welcome back to Insights, episode 26 um, with Fernando Martinez. We're talking about storytelling. Uh, hopefully everybody's still with us. Uh, I feel like this has been a really fun conversation. I know Fernando feels movies. the same. Yeah. I have no idea if listening to it is fun, <laughs> but doing it is. So that's always a good sign. Um, but uh, also as a little context, I have, uh, Fernie and I have known each other since we were 10 years old. So if you want this kind of easy banter with somebody, just hang out with them for 35 years and <laughs> you, you'll be all set. So, um, in fact, based off that, I've mentioned Tilda Swinton twice today. Didn't you sit next to her on a plane? plane yeah, just completely randomly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Has nothing to do with anything. It's just weird, the, this, yeah. this random actress. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so we were talking about dialogue, uh, and I want to talk about maybe types of dialogue and, and people who are known for that that style, uh, so people can pick up on that, identify with that, and maybe watch those movies and really see, uh, be more analytical about it and, and watch the dialogue occur and ask yourself, why is this so good? Why does it work? Uh, or do I like it or do I not, right? It's not everything isn't for everybody. Um, but before we even get to that, uh, there is, I think this changes. When I learned this rule, it changed the way I watched movies. Um, there's a a rule uh, or a test, uh, actually, of does a uh, uh, does a film have a gender bias? And, and obviously, they all they all do. Uh, but anyway, the test is: Do two women talk to each other about something other than a man? That's it. Like, it doesn't sound that hard. It's not like, is there a conversation about uh, gender and the patriarchy and like all this stuff? It's not hard. It's just, do they ever talk to each other about something other than a man? Um, what's what it was, what's it called? I believe you're talking about the Be Bechdel test, um, okay. which actually like counts the number of minutes that that happens. And it's embarrassingly low uh, for the majority of films. Or it may not happen at all. Yeah, or it may not happen at all. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean, and I mean, not, I mean, <laughs> I've watched movies with it in mind and it just, it, suddenly, it, just doesn't happen. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. They peel back the curtain. You're like, wow. Um, I think romantic comedies are especially bad about it because there's always the best friend or whatever, mm -hmm. but her function is to bounce stuff off of maybe she's comedic relief or whatever. Um, but they end up talking about the guys, right? Like they rarely, uh, I, I, and granted, it's about uh, if it's romantic comedy, it's about the romance. So I guess it makes a little bit more sense there. But it's weird how many other movies fail to do that. Right. Um, so pretty crazy. Um, so that maybe that's something. Female cool. writers, for sure. Yeah, right. Uh, I read a great quote the other day that said, uh, I just realized that I didn't like female characters because I had met them through a generation of men who hate women. <laughs> so the idea was uh, that these, Makes sense. That it was it was male authors, right? Mm -hmm. And so not only do they not necessarily not get women right, you know, they don't have the insights of Nora Ephron or um, uh, some, you know, uh, great uh, female filmmaker, but they actively dislike women. <laughs> so they give them all the worst qualities and um, and they become, we're going to talk about uh, the foil uh, versus the villain. But I mean, you know, you really have these female villains that are very hateable. And granted, that's their function in the movie. 
but also a man wrote it. And so <laughs> it's this misrepresentation of it. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about villain versus foil. I think that's a really cool conversation. But, but before we do that, let's get back to the dialogue that we were talking about. Maybe we can use these filmmakers as examples. So the first one we were talking about was uh, Richard Linklater, um, who you interned with. He made um, the Before series. Uh, and he also, did he make Boyhood? or Boyhood. What, what else is? Okay. Uh, Dazed and Confused. Um, right. Bernie. Uh, okay. He's working on another 20-year project as of late. Oh, and he did the animated stuff. We yeah, he did a Waking for, Life and Scanner Guard Life, yeah. 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 So, um, so yeah, he's done some, I mean, I guess he's indie for sure. Uh, weirdly enough, I think people would probably know him best for, for School of Rock. Probably School of Rock, I think is what he Oh, really? That's yeah, him? He, he, oh, okay. did, he did the uh, one for me, one for them model uh, for most of his career where he would, you know, work on a Hollywood uh, picture like the Bad News Bears or School of Rock and then, you know, work on his more personal projects. That's cool. Uh, yeah. To fund it. Yeah, to <laughs> pay the bills. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um, so a uh, great uh, dialogue writer. Um, uh, and it, for the before series, we're talking about how it can seem natural by being imperfect. Um, I don't know if that's a, a perfect summary of it, but uh, Ethan Hawke does a lot of ums and ahs. And so right. he'll have filler words and uh, he, he has this hesitations or just little things that make it sound more genuine. Right. Um, and they'll do the, I think pause because that's how people talk, right? right? That's how people think. I mean, it gives you a moment and it, it's kind of nice as a, as a viewer, you get a moment to consume or to relax or to, to see these other things going on. Um, so that's link later. And then, uh, Tarantino, I I'll let you completely define Tarantino. I don't even know how to explain it, except that I felt like, um, once I thought about Tarantino delivery, that everybody sounds like Quentin Tarantino when you watch Pulp Fiction, like you could totally hear Quentin Tarantino saying those things. Um, and maybe that's not a fair statement, but that's kind of what I have in my head. Um, but uh, and then uh, I'd like to introduce Aaron Sorkin because I have a crush on Aaron Sorkin. I think he's <laughs> the most phenomenal writer on the planet, any kind of writer. Um, but uh, his dialogue is fast paced. Everyone, and it's kind of the opposite of Linklater. Everyone is perfect. Everyone says the wittiest, smartest, right. fastest thing ever in a way that is that I think we all know is humanly impossible. <laughs> but he makes it work and it's fun to watch. You know what I mean? Like West wing. I just, I could just watch those people talk to each other uh, because everything is perfect. So it's yeah. maybe a great counterpoint to, to link later. Um, so can you maybe talk about the different dialogue styles and, and uh, templates and what they're trying to do and do they do it well? For sure. So there's, there's a typical uh, writer for hire who's, you know, who's just hired to polish dialogue um, just mm -hmm. to make it sound a little more human, right? Um, that's what you find most of the time. Um, the three examples you gave are sort of the outliers. <clears throat> They're the ones who kind of um, are a little more known for it. They bring attention to it. So Richard Linklater's style is a, is a lot more collaborative with his actors, right? So uh, mm -hmm. what's written on the page isn't, it's probably hardly ever what ends up on, on, on the final <laughs> screen, right? So he allows the actors to 
not necessarily improvise because it's not a loose improvisation, but uh, definitely to to put in some input and to try things different ways. Um, actually, I think the Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right. I think uh, that was right, improvised. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but it, it's very loose and just very collaborative. He's just willing to to listen. And if the actor really feels like the character would speak in this manner, then, then that really does make it to, uh, to the final product. Um, Tarantino, I think it's right in, in between. He's probably the most creative in that regard. Um, but his dialogue just really stands out. I mean, you could listen to a lot of his characters in, you know, in, in, a, in a vacuum and right. realize that they're written from, uh, from him. You could kind of say the same thing about uh, Sorkin. But um, right. yeah, Tarantino, Sorkin, not to call him a... I love Sorkin too, but okay. very... Uh, one trick pony-ish maybe i don't know uh, yeah, has more range i guess okay. is, would yeah. be the best way to say it um both fantastic uh, when it comes to to writing dialogue um yeah for sure aaron sorkin style it's fast and it's really great because his scripts are you know if it's 120 uh, a minute movie his scripts could be 240 pages but he knows that the actors so are going to speak you know at 2x speed uh, so they can get right. away with it um so we mentioned these three, but I think the best culmination of everything has to be the Coen brothers. The Coen brothers are seriously uh, the goats at this, just the greatest. At, okay. They're so precise about everything. So everything, every word that's written is not only exactly what's on the page, but every breath, every um, every, every pronunciation of the word, any hesitation, it's all from the page. They, they do not deviate. Which is weird. Well. That's like a breaking a fundamental rule of writing. And, You're not supposed to tell actors how to act. And they do. You, you, and, but they are so, they're so in line with their vision that mm. they know how good they are. Right. So it's like David mm. Mamet has a great quote. Uh, David Mamet's a playwright who also does right. a lot of screenwriting, but he said something to the effect I'm paraphrasing, but uh, if an actor can improvise better than I can write, then what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> which for a playwright i I mean when playwrights dude i love whenever you see a movie that's by a playwright like in bruges you know i love in bruges but that's a playwright makes a movie you're like guaranteed it's gonna be really good dialogue really good writing um but yeah no i mean that's a fair point okay but the the best thing about the coen brothers is that their their genres span so much like quintino give us some famous movies for people that don't know who that is uh so the coen brothers um have been making movies since the 80s um they started off making like zany comedies like raising arizona um they're probably most famous for uh fargo the big lebowski uh no country for old men um recently they did hail caesar um oh brother we're out that was an older movie of theirs um but they're they've just jumped around from different genres um and basically, but they've never shifted the way that they've um, they've written and the way that they've produced their their movies, right? So it's a it's two brothers working in tandem, but they really know exactly what they want, and they're the ones who are telling the actors no. The, the Big Lebowski is a perfect example of that. Like every, uh, which is weird. You would totally think the Big Lebowski is just him riffing. Riffing, yeah. You know what I mean? Not, but it's, it's not. It's uh, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and, right. and they do that for all their characters, and uh, and it's it's so impressive because, you know, uh, No Country for Old Men is one of my 
favorite movies of all time. And that is not dialogue heavy by any means. It's probably, I don't know, maybe 20% dialogue of the entire movie. Uh, and it's just scene building, world building, but so much tension for the entire movie. And uh, I don't know, it, they're just fantastic at, at what they do. And I think they really do, aside from Richard Linklater, I think they do uh, what Sorkin and uh, Tarantino uh, strive to do, but they just do it to a level of perfection across multiple genres. Uh, nice. So I, I would That's put impressive. them at the, at the upper echelon. At the top? At the top. <clears throat> I mean, actually, if you, knowing that, hearing that, uh, if you watched The Big Lebowski, for example, um, well, also Tarantino writes like for certain actors, right? So Correct. it's interesting to see that he writes with an actor in mind. Precisely. And sometimes that changes and, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so to see who who he didn't get uh, for whatever reason, it's interesting to watch the dialogue through that lens, you know what I Correct. mean? And, and think about that person delivering right. it. Um, but see, if you think about the big Lebowski, uh, first of all, the dude is such a unique character. How do you, how do you write that? Right. <laughs> Cause it just seems like that. It seems like method acting. It seems like Val Kilmer or, or whatever, just yeah. like doors ish, just kind of diving into a character and, and you see what happens. But obviously you're, you're saying that's not how it works. Steve Buscemi, He's so weird, dude. How do you write for Steve Buscemi and have him sound like, I mean, you must totally have him in mind right. because, uh, because he is such a unique character. Um, and then uh, all the lines uh, delivered by uh, uh, what's his name from Roseanne? Uh, no, Jeff. Uh, what's his name? Um, John Goodman. John Goodman. There you go. Uh, uh, John Goodman again is such a unique character and not himself uh, but if that feels like I guess all of it feels like method acting to me if I were to guess you know what I mean um, so to hear that you can craft that level of specificity and for a movie like that it's is the, really it's the, specificity is the best word it's the same people that created the dude character created Anton Sugar the villain from A Country for Old Men but also like right. Lewin Davis um a folk musician in, in 1960s New York, right? So, right. And to get it so precisely correct is, I, I mean, it's, it's inspiring. It's an incredible talent. It's incredible talent. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing about storytelling and filmmaking or reading books or whatever. There is a difference between enjoying something and thinking, just recognizing how amazing it is, like what an accomplishment it is. So you know what I mean? I think. That, Sorry, to Please. that point, because uh, to bring it back to your boy uh, Sorkin, this is this is a, I'm really glad you brought that up because um, so Social Network it, that Aaron Sorkin wrote, um, mm -hmm. not necessarily one of my favorite movies. Like I wouldn't put it on the top of my favorite list, but I think it's a perfect movie. I think it's just perfectly constructed, and it's something to be said to watching people who are just really, really good at what they do <laughs> come together, right? right. It's like right. watching, I don't know, the, the 90s Chicago Bulls or uh, right. Brazilian just soccer anybody, team. Yeah. Just, they're right. doing it so well. So it's in like- In concert. In concert, yeah. yeah. So you have Aaron Sorkin producing, writing a wonderful script. Um, you got David- It's an Hitch, adaptation right? though, isn't it? Which it's an is adaptation even of a shitty book. The book is, oh, okay. is shit. <laughs> okay. The book is like a okay. terrible book. Um, that writer okay. is one of my least favorite writers uh, ben Merzak, I believe, was his name. Well, that makes it even harder. It makes it even harder, right? Because he turned yeah. 
a turd into a diamond. I mean, that's an Oscar category, though. Adaptation specifically, right? Correct. Not just screenwriting. Yeah. Adaptations Adaptation is its is own category correct. because it's, it's super, super hard. Difficult. Yeah. Right. But you have that script from Sorkin, which is gold. You have David Fincher at the height of his, uh, of his directing powers. All the actors, you know, turning in wonderful performances. Um, cinematographer Cronin Weth, I believe is his name. He... Um, First time really working in 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 high in 4K digital. Uh, there's there was other movies before that for sure, but this is that you know special cameras made for this movie and it's really indecipherable from 35 millimeter. It's the one that really uh, set the standard as to what can be done. And then you have like the the score from um, um, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails and uh, no Atticus Ross. So it's like all these people just geniuses in their own fields all coming together and it was a a sight to behold it's again it's not my favorite movie but i can watch it and just appreciate it 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 was like this is just a perfect movie because everybody is at the height of their powers here and it's just great to appreciate that so that's awesome because most people if if for people listening especially younger people but they think of it as just like the facebook story right you know what i mean like to them it's not even a movie it's like a documentary (laughs) or whatever so um it's uh i don't think they would think of it as this like perfectly crafted thing because it's like oh i'm getting some insights into the guy that invented facebook and oh there's these twins and I, i don't know it would just be a totally different viewing experience for people that weren't watching it with that same intent um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that is cool to see all those people working together really well. And it, it's what makes filmmaking so hard and why a lot of writers slash directors want complete control because they do have to be in concert. Um, and it can be tough for people to mesh with anybody else. Um, Aaron Sorkin, uh, has such a unique voice that he's had to toward the end of West Wing and toward the end of, uh, um, newsroom he'll have to bring in other people to try to balance out his voice right right? specifically uh because these are all political uh you know social slash political things so he'll try to bring in people from the counterpoint to to rein him in if you will i think that's partially pushed by the network it's partially him wanting to be more objective but to me it just messes things up like it's better if he'll just be him um studio 60 was brilliantly done and didn't last but i I love studio 60 um and and it's so weird all these things coming together but studio 60 and 30 rock came out at the same time Right. And they are two completely different takes on we're going to go Saturday. behind the scenes of Saturday Night Live. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's that's the premise. And they did it in totally different ways. Yeah. And nobody would have guessed at the time that Tina Fey was going to be Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> right? Uh, but she did. Oh, but that um, writing on that show was fantastic, too. <laughs> it is in a totally like, different a totally way. Different way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Alec Baldwin is a great character. Um, and to make his... And especially if you know his person, his actual personal views, um, and I've I've read his uh, memoir, uh, but his character is nothing like him, which of course makes it even more impressive. And how do you write for um, uh, Tracy? Uh, whatever, I mean, <laughs> I don't know that you can get him to say what you wanted to say, right? So. Um, that, movie, that show is just such a trip. But anyway, um, I don't know if you remember, but uh, Sorkin did a cameo on uh, uh, 30 Rock. And he, like, lets them take a piss out of him. So <laughs> it's him and Tina Fey. 
and they're sitting there and she's, I guess, maybe thinking about leaving her job or something, but she's about to interview for like doing commercials or just something really beneath her, really embarrassing. Uh-huh. And she's like, I can't believe I'm actually doing this. And then the camera pans over and Aaron Sorkin is sitting there. He's about to do the same thing. And she's like, what have we come to? And he, and he goes, walk with me. <laughs> they do, we'll they do a walk and talk. <laughs> and they, do, they do a thing, they're bantering or whatever. And he's, he's driving the story forward because he's explaining how, right, how, in, how dispensable writers are and stuff like that and, and et cetera, et cetera. And then in the middle of it, she's like, did we just walk in a circle? Because <laughs> of course they did, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it's this great shot at West Wing, which is phenomenal and respected, but he's still willing to... Uh, to have them, you know, make fun of his thing. But at the same time, it's poignant in that he's saying, as good as we are at our jobs, both of us, right? This is what we can be reduced to in Hollywood, you know? So, um, and at the end, they call him, they call him and he pops up all peppy, excited to go write some like Campbell's Soup commercial or whatever. So, um, yeah, it's just a brilliant moment, but uh, it's, it's interesting to see them overlap when, when, like I said, Studio 60 and 30 Rocky Mountain at the same time. But, um, but yeah, all these people are really good at what they do and very different. Yeah. Um, and uh, and what I just realized is we talked about why is dialogue so hard? Um, I love writing dialogue. Like you said, there are some people that are just good at writing dialogue. And so they come in to polish scripts and, and just polish dialogue when everything else is in place. I could totally do that you know Mm -hmm. like the other parts seem really hard to me but having two people chat uh is really fun um but uh but it i we said it was natural i said it was natural and you said yeah but think about it only 10 percent of what we say matters you know what i mean um and it's utilitarian but also when what we're trying to get to is to tell people how to tell better stories there is no diet there's very little if any dialogue in in first person, one person storytelling, you know, they, they very rarely say, and then I said, and then Mm -hmm. she said, and he was like, you know, like, we don't do that. Um, And we do essays, you don't see quotation marks very often. I mean, that would be a real rule breaker to a degree. Uh, It's supposed to be jarring if you do it. Mm -hmm. So dialogue seems like, I always feel like it should be better. It should be more natural. It should be funnier. It should be I don't know. I always wish more for it. Um, but, uh, but you, when you think about how regular life works, you, I, I'm starting to see like literally in the middle of this conversation, I'm starting to see that it is something that we so rarely practice, right. you know? Um, yes, we do talk to people, but we only have control over one side of the conversation for one thing. And we're probably not that good at it. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, well, writing a scene, writing dialogue with, with uh, multiple characters would be super hard. And there are definitely authors out there um, that write great uh, first person. You know, they can right. just write a story, but if you ever ask them to write dialogue, things can fall apart really quickly. Um, Klosterman is such a... I saw Klosterman 4 was on sale the other day, and... Um, I already owned it, but like redownloaded it. Uh, but Klosterman uh, is someone that I really, really like, and you introduced me to. But uh, he doesn't write dialogue. You right. know, he's just 
Yeah, I mean, if he does, it's a quote because he's <laughs> right. interviewing people, right? So when you get great dialogue, it's coming from the person that said it. Obviously, as a journalist, you're choosing what to include and what not to include. But he has had forays into fiction, and they are definitely not nearly as well received. Um, so yeah. I guess a lot of people are one trick ponies to that degree. But also, if you're going to be at the absolute height of anything, super impressive right so <laughs> if you're just the best at anything that's still amazing yeah exactly right no and that's what i was gonna say the fact that they can change genres and people um and this is gonna seem like a weird inclusion but we were talking about the main characters from big lebowski but now i'm thinking about um uh jesus the bowler <laughs> um the jesus i mean <laughs> <laughs> How do you invent him? You know what I mean? So um, all all of those characters uh, are so diverse. Um, and then you watch a Tarantino film, and I think you are you can start to see some overlap right. um, between those characters. And it reminds me a little bit of, this is why spec scripts can be interesting too, um, to watching re-watching Friends, which was this, you know, I know it's not everybody's favorite show, but it was this monumentally successful show and it did have great dialogue. But when you go back and watch uh, early episodes, you can actually see them put jokes in somebody else's mouth. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like you can tell that it was written for Chandler, right. but they had Joey say it because he had gone too long without talking. Yeah. And this was early on. So I think they maybe didn't have their characters fully formed or it was just kind of a lazy thing. But you can tell when people are saying things that are not their lines, if you will, you yeah. know. Um, and and so I think that can be really difficult where they know something needs to be said uh, or, or it's funny, but who, who should say it? Right. Um, and so for Tarantino, I think uh, certain things need to be said and there's almost some flexibility with who could say it because there is some overlap between those character developments. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, cool. Well, I hope everybody can go watch. <laughs> go watch all these guys. Go watch all these hundred movies <laughs> with all these different people and a TV show. Watch eight seasons of The West Wing. Actually, another great one, right? Aaron Sorkin stopped uh, being the the writer for The West Wing or this individual writer. I think he executive produced, um, but somewhere about season three and a half or four, and you can feel it. You know what I mean? Um, you can uh, you can tell when things change. Uh, so, but yeah, go watch these movies and, and pay attention to dialogue and just consume storytelling in a different way. And, uh, it reminds me of another great Vonnegut quote that he got from a friend of his. He asked, a an artist friend of his, like, how do you know? Cause he didn't know how to objectively evaluate art. So he asked his friend, how do you know if a painting is good? And the friend said, uh, look at a million paintings and you'll never be wrong. The idea that if you uh, yes. just look at enough and you start to get a sense of how to compare and, and, and things like that, you may never know the rule of thirds. Like you wouldn't know that it's called that, but you will learn it. Uh, and you'll learn what a Dutch angle is and, and you'll learn about depth and oh, you hate the Renaissance. You'll learn why <laughs> they couldn't paint babies. <laughs> like Why do they all look like dwarves? You know what I mean? So um, it's uh, it's something I think you could pick up just by consuming but if you're paying attention for it it definitely expedites that process for sure um, and it opens up a whole new world once you once you're able to recognize these things and what you're watching it really does um just add an, an extra level of enjoyment i think that's cool well and 
maybe this is a good one. Obviously, in film school, you're watching a lot of movies. And I've noticed this as a writer. I go through phases where if I read too much Hemingway, I start writing like Hemingway. If I read too much whomever, like they find their voice, like they hijack my my brain <laughs> um, and I can feel my voice changing, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you should it should be a purposeful thing. And it's it's not. Yeah. Um when you watch all these great movies and you're, of course, wanting to learn and grow as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, how do you make sure that you don't end up just mimicking people? Is that is that really hard? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you never really know what's going to influence you one way or the other. Um, and sometimes it just seeps, seeps in there unconsciously. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was the mimicking of styles was really evident during certain times uh, especially in the last 20, 25 years uh, in independent cinema. It's like every student at a film school in the mid-90s was trying to make a Tarantino movie and then like a oh, Kevin okay. Smith movie and and then a Wes Anderson right. movie. So uh, so you did see some of these styles that did sort of uh, get mimicked more than others. But ultimately, you just, you know, you kind of pick and choose um, things that stand out to you and, um and yeah, you kind of let those influence you, uh, maybe indirectly. Um, you never want to completely copy someone's style, but you know, you take little pieces from here and there, which is pretty and much Tarantino's entire dad. So you make your own thing. But um, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson, I think, is one who's just done unique things um, throughout his career. He was completely influenced by um, by uh, by Jonathan Demme. So you can you can see in his early pictures that. Um, you know, the whip pans, the zooming in, films like uh, Magnolia, Heart Eight, uh, Boogie Nights, you can see the direct influence. But then he kind of mm. just took that and made a style all, all of his own. And mm. everything he's made since then is just kind of uh, an evolution of himself as a filmmaker. So that's been really exciting to see. Uh, someone who's clearly influenced by somebody early in their career, but then just kind of uh, forging their own path as a you know, as they start to become a little more comfortable with their storytelling. So, yeah. That's cool, man. But it's also hard. I'm thinking of it can be difficult because you love somebody for their style and their style changes. And are you evolving with them or are you not? And you're disappointed because it's not them anymore. So, for example, Brett Easton Ellis. Uh, so I go, to go back to books. Um he has such a unique voice, but I mean, he wrote, wrote his first novel at like 19 or whatever. I mean, he wrote it as a an assignment for class and suddenly it's a bestseller. Um, but he had such a unique voice that was perfect and it worked for about four books. You know what I mean? Um, plus he got famous at 19 or 20. So he was perfect at writing that 1980s college kid, uh, right. kind of rich, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, I think it probably... the he, he could take it all the way to American Psycho and get to young adult working, uh, you know, doing a lot of coke and working in New York, right? But there, it feels like he hit a wall. Um, and then a big step backward, uh, or, you know, just kind of step back for a while, and then came back in and wrote that big, the novel that was like half uh, nonfiction, and then he bled oh, yeah, into I forgot about that, yeah. And I remember being like, I don't like this. This doesn't sound like you. But also, if you still sounded like you, I don't know if I would like that either. Like, it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. um, if I, sometimes you all grow an author. Yeah, that happens too. 
You do? Yeah, no, for authors, for sure, which is why there are certain books you do not go back and read, for me personally, right? So, like, um, I was thinking about uh, there are books that I recommend that I have not gone back and read because I think it would ruin it for me. You know what I mean? Like, I read Hemingway at exactly the right time. Um, I pro- I'm almost definitely have outgrown him in a way. Um, but at the time it was so transformative and life-changing. Right. Uh, and there are certain artists and I guess it's not just art- authors, right? It's artists, yeah, uh, that you do yeah. outgrow. Right. Um, I was thinking, uh, we were talking last night about John Hughes film films, you know, I mean, he was the filmmaker of the eighties yeah. for a certain genre, at least. Right. Um, and, uh, I don't. I don't go back and watch any John Hughes films. Not even um, alone. I guess that's oh, Christopher dude, Columbus. I hate. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is Christopher Columbus, which is funny because I saw him mentioned earlier, and I forgot he directed. Um, I remember seeing his name. He directed uh, some of the Lord of the Rings stuff, and it's like well, that's super the Harry weird. Potter stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Harry Potter. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. It's still just very, very different. But no, I hated Home Alone. I but hate Fer- Ferris Bueller still. See, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up Ferris Bueller, and I don't know if it's that's. I mean, it's almost like this fear. Um, so I haven't rewatched Ferris Bueller and been disappointed. I just haven't watched it again. Breakfast I haven't Club felt like I needed to. And Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I don't think Breakfast Club out. would hold up. Really? The other ones do not. Sixteen Candles does not. Um, Pretty in Pink, I think, has some problematic issues these days. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with Ferris Bueller. I think. Uh, Ferris Bueller, I mean, I, I can see it's it has the best movie. chance of holding up. Um, Ooh, but, planes, uh, trains, and automobiles. Oh, well, yeah. That's okay, a- I didn't know that you made that. But yeah, that's something else entirely. But see, that I would never have guessed that's a John Hughes film. That totally breaks the trend. You True. Know what I mean, we're talking about high school movies. Um, right. So, uh, but yeah, uh, I wonder if Breakfast Club, I mean, it's just, it seems, maybe it's been redone so many times like that general idea of these really stock characters that probably weren't stock at the time you know what i mean but have become kind of stock characters uh but again i don't know this is without having rewatched it uh but i wanted to mention uh this maybe is a good time to to do another break because i want to talk about the difference between a foil and a villain um and I read a really interesting thing uh, about Breakfast Club, and they used it as their example. And my having not watched it in a long time will make it difficult for me to explain this well <laughs> at all. So I'll introduce the idea, and, and you can take it from there. Um, but let's let's maybe talk about some devices okay. uh, that are used in there. So uh, villain, foil, foreshadowing, um, inciting incident, um, those kinds of things that you would use in personal storytelling, sitting around a campfire, sitting around a, uh, a bar. Uh, so I know we've used movies to kind of dissect and understand, but you can't replicate those things, at least most of the things we've talked about, right? So let's start talking about things that people can actually employ in their own storytelling. So um, uh, we'll jump back in here in a minute and talk about uh, different devices that you can use uh, in storytelling. So I'll be right back with Fernie to discuss that. 